Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. We are finishing our little July jaunt through aquatic mythology by taking a look at water nymphs in ancient Greek mythology. Originally, I had said that I was going to look at naiads, but then when I started doing the research, I realised there was a lot more to it than that. So we're actually going to be looking at three groups of water nymphs in ancient Greece. You do get water nymphs in other countries and other cultures, but just for the matter of space and time, we're just going to focus on ancient Greece. So the three groups are the Naiads, the Nereids and the Oceanids. I'm probably pronouncing them completely wrong, but I've never heard them pronounced, so just bear with me. To make things slightly more complicated, you do also have Undines, and Wikipedia actually lists Naiads, Mermaids and Nereids as forms of Undine. I do want to point out that Naiads, Mermaids and Nereids all appear in Greek mythology in their own right, and it's Paracelsus who is the first person to mention Undines in his 1658 book Liber de Nymphis, Sylphus, Gnomes et Salamandris et de Caeteris Spiritibus. I've probably pronounced that completely wrong or conjured a demon, we'll probably find out later. But here, the Undine becomes the personification of the element of water, so it's not the same necessarily as the nymphs we're going to be having a look at. And according to Paracelsus, Undines aren't human and don't have a soul. So marrying a human is the only way to get one, and somehow tying the knot grants them an immortal human soul, but it does shorten their lifespan. But this post won't be talking about Undines, because Paracelsus basically made them up based on the Greek water nymphs, so that's what we're going to focus on instead. So the water nymphs are usually, but not always, fairly well disposed towards humans, and they do have a long lifespan, but they're not necessarily immortal themselves, and they later became identified with native spirits associated with streams and springs in Italy. So the Naiads are the ones we're going to look at first, and they were the nymphs of flowing water, and they're usually depicted as being quite light-hearted, beautiful, and they're quite keen to do favours. And in some myths, they're considered the ones that protect young maidens. Now, each water source had its own naiad, and if something happened to that water source, its naiad would die. So some believe that their waters actually had healing powers of some description. There are five separate groups, and scholars classify them based on where they live. So you have naiads of fountains and wells, lakes, springs, rivers and streams, and wetlands. And obviously, if you think about it, particularly in hot climates, fresh water sources are incredibly important. So lots of people worship the Naiads, and they even gave their names to particular towns like Thespia. Now, their fathers were the Potomoi, ancient Greek river gods. Now, this is where it starts to get awkward as we look at the genealogy of them, so I apologise for that in advance. But the Potomoi were the sons of Oceanus, who is one of their primal gods, which makes the Naiads his granddaughters. Now, in one legend, one of the Naiads has a relationship with the sun god Helios, and their three daughters go on to become the three graces. I'm not going to focus too much more on the Naiads' parentage, because really the only thing you need to know is that their father is the Potomoi, and the Potomoi's father is Oceanus. We're going to come back to him, I promise. Now, one of the most famous Naiads was Daphne, who was pursued by the god Apollo. 
he's basically been shot with an arrow by Eros, the god of love, and Apollo falls in love with Daphne. She's not interested because she's pledged to remain both unmarried and a virgin, emulating Apollo's twin sister Artemis, who's also a protector of young maidens. So Daphne runs off to the river because her father Lardon is the local river god. She begs him for help because Apollo just will not take no for an answer, and in response, her father turns her into a laurel tree. So, it stops Apollo, but it doesn't exactly improve Daphne's lot in life. Apollo then gives Daphne immortality, which explains why the laurel tree is evergreen. Now, so far, we've sort of looked at them having relatively good nature towards humans, but the naiads are actually perhaps the least helpful of the three, and the ones in the wetlands might make people get lost in the swamps just because. An angry naiad would quite happily go after revenge. So there's been an example of one called Nomia, who falls in love with a shepherd on Sicily. Everything's going well, she pledges herself to be faithful to him, life's grand, and then the princess on the island gets him drunk because she wants to seduce him. So the princess is really the wrong in in this story. Nomia finds out about it and she blinds the shepherd in response. Doesn't actually say what she does to the princess, though I would imagine she's really the guilty party in this, so possibly should have been punished instead. But anyway... We also see the kind of danger to men in the naiads that you now often get overlaid onto both mermaids and sirens. And if you're interested in those, or either of them, the previous two episodes will give you what you need. Now in one legend, we're going to go to Jason and the Argonauts here. Uh, one of the Argonauts, Hylus, goes off looking for water and he manages to find a pond. The problem is, the pond is full of naiads and they basically kidnap him. One of the other Argonauts goes looking for him, can't find him, and basically he's been stolen by the naiads and john william waterhouse actually captured the moment in two paintings so there's one in 1893 where a single naiad has found hylas asleep on the bank and then there's also another image from 1896 which is just called hylas and the nymphs and that one was even removed from display at the manchester art gallery in january 2018 and this was when there was all this public discussion rightly so i should point out for things like me too and generally the social treatment of women and the curator actually took it down after discussions about how it was objectifying women because obviously the nymphs are all topless in it but a week later the painting went back on display because there was such a backlash against it now as much as I'm in favour of cutting down on these depictions of the objectification of women in this particular painting the women are actually dangerous to Hylas and one of the naiads is even pulling his arm sort of like trying to encourage him into the water and this could be the threatening power of female sexuality which is what was then placed onto mermaids and sirens as well by artists in the same period so if you've got the naiads who are actually quite dangerous to people or can be anyway not always you've then got the nereids who are completely different basically and they're both saltwater and freshwater nymphs and this is where the genealogy is going to start getting a bit mad so they're the daughters of Nereus, who's a sea god, and that's fine, but also Doris, who's a daughter of Oceanus. So their sea godfather makes them sea nymphs. Sometimes people say, say they've seen them in the Mediterranean. More often they're found in the Aegean Sea. And there's actually an image on my blog. So if you go to www.icysedgwick.com forward slash water hyphen nymphs, you'll see all of these lovely paintings. And there's one by Gustav Dore, which is basically called the Oceanids, naiads of the sea but actually what he's painted are nereids but this is where it gets complicated so the father's a sea god that's fine but because their mother is 
the daughter of Oceanus, that means their grandfather is Oceanus. Now, to know why that's confusing, you'd think ocean, oh, that must be sea. But this is where ancient Greek mythology and geography get a bit, bit strange, because to them, a huge freshwater river actually encircled the earth. So Oceanus was the god of that, not what we call the ocean, which means that his daughters were freshwater nymphs, and so were his granddaughters. Confused yet? So these water nymphs are depicted in a range of ways, but generally speaking, you see them either playing with other sea creatures, you sometimes see them as mermaids, and they basically potter about in the seas, they're quite highly thought of, and they would often help sailors or fishermen if they got into trouble. So quite a lot of ports had shrines to the Nereids because obviously they were helpful. Now a famous Nereid was Amphitrite, who was the consort of Poseidon. Now he basically was looking for a a queen of the sea among the Nereids and she didn't really want to marry him at first even though she was supposed to be the most beautiful of them all and considering his behaviour towards Medusa who can blame her but after fleeing from him eventually she's persuaded to change her mind and she ends up as queen of the sea another famous Nereid is Thetis and in this case both Poseidon and Zeus wanted to marry her but there was a prophecy about her son being more powerful than his father obviously Zeus being the type that he was, he decides, no, I'm not having a son who's more powerful than me, mainly because I suppose he'd seen what happened when he overthrew his father. So Zeus marries her off to Peleus, who's king of the Myrmidons, because he assumes no son of hers with a human would be able to fulfil this prophecy. Or how wrong one person can be. So Thetis bears a son to Peleus called Achilles, who ends up more powerful than Zeus. Who knew? And obviously this is where she dips him in the river sticks to make him immortal, but obviously the only part that doesn't get wet is his heel, because that's where she's pinching him. And obviously that's where he then gets shot with an arrow. Thetis then also pops up in the legends of Jason and the Argonauts, and the Nereids in general basically help these heroes along in their quest, unlike the Nereids who kidnap one of them. So far I've been focusing on the more positive side of the Nereids, because generally speaking that's, that's all you can really find about them. They are a much more positive force. But the two still have their moments. Although in this, in this particular story, I'll leave it up to you whether they were in the wrong or in the right. But Queen Cassiopeia announced that she's more beautiful than the Nereids, which seems a bit of a daft thing to do. Why would you annoy semi-divine beings? So they then go and complain to Poseidon, presumably through Amphitrite's influence. So to keep them happy, Poseidon then sends a sea monster off to destroy Cassiopeia's city. And only sacrificing her daughter Andromeda will call off Poseidon and the sea monster. Luckily for Andromeda, Perseus turns up and rescues her, and you may have seen that particular plotline in Clash of the Titans. So now that's the Nereids out of the way, we're going to get onto the Oceanids, and there's a lot less to deal with with the Oceanids. And, which is weird, because according to the mythology, there was 3,000 of them. Only 100 of them appear consistently in the original text, so it's far more likely there wasn't actually that many. And as the daughters of Oceanus, they're freshwater nymphs. So remember, he's the god of the river around the earth, not the ocean. Although it does get confusing that their brothers are the Potnomoi, the Greek river gods, and they're the ones that are the fathers of the Naiads. So basically, the Oceanids are essentially the Naiads' ants, I guess. Anyway, the water nymphs get pretty confusing. Like the Naiads, the Oceanids are split into groups. So you've got Oceanids for the clouds, the water and the breeze, pastures and flowers. And people like to honour the Oceanids and sailors would often pray to them or make sacrifices to ensure safe voyages. Which I think Jason and the Argonauts did the same thing as well when they set off on their quest to find the Golden Fleece. Although given they end up getting help from the Nereids, I hope that they honoured the Nereids as well. 
Another thing to remember about Oceanus, though, is he was actually a titan, who so he was part of the original Greek gods before the Olympian gods took over. Now, Oceanus stayed neutral in the battle, which is why he was never imprisoned by Zeus. But it means that his daughters are then basically daughters of the titans, not daughters of an Olympian. One famous Oceanid was Metis, who was the original goddess of wisdom. Now, she actually married Zeus before he met Hera, presumably, but he then swallowed her when a prophecy said that her son would overthrow him. Sounds familiar, right? But through Metis, because she was already pregnant with the next goddess of wisdom, Athena, Zeus then ended up birthing her himself from his forehead, and Metis weirdly continued to provide counsel to Zeus from inside him where he swallowed her. Another famous Oceanid is Styx. Now, she abandoned the, the Titans to basically join Zeus during the war with the Titans, and he then, as a as a thank you, made her the goddess of the river that flows through the underworld. Other Oceanids are famous in their own right, but a lot of them are more famous for who they give birth to. So some of them give birth to people like Atlas, Prometheus, Iris, Circe, Nike, the Harpies and the Three Graces. And yes, I know, I did say earlier that one of the Naiads gave birth to the Graces, but you know, the legends do differ. But also there's a legend that the Oceanids actually spent time with Persephone when she was in the underworld after she'd been kidnapped by Hades. So presumably that's through Styx's links. But it's quite nice to think that actually Persephone did have company while she was there. And unlike the Naiads, who are often believed to be tied to specific bodies of water, the Oceanids ended up attached to regions instead. So there's an Oceanid for Europe called Europa. There's another one called Asia. And actually when you look at quite a few of their names, you can then see the descent of their name in place names, even if we've forgotten the original Oceanids. So there we have it, the three types of water nymphs in Greek mythology. I think I like the Oceanids the most, and they're not as flashy as the Naiads, but they seem happier to just get on with their job. And the Nereids are quite cool because they're helpful towards sailors or fishermen, and when they do get annoyed, it seems to be with some level of justification. Now, many of these water nymphs, no matter which group they come from, do end up being defined by their association with male figures, and that's gods and human alike. Now, the Oceanids in particular become mothers or wives, and because of this, they're basically then made safe, which is why I think we don't see quite as many legends about them, and we don't hear as much about them being particularly vengeful. Whereas you get the Naiads, who seem a little bit more content to maybe follow their own rules, and because they've got that less rigid approach, that's where they're the ones who are then often seen as being vengeful or seductive towards men, and they're made a little bit more dangerous. So I think that's possibly the problem, and that's why we've got more stories about dangerous naiads. But no matter where you're travelling, whether it's by river, by sea, anywhere it's on water, just remember to drop these three groups of water nymphs a bit of a quick prayer next time you have to travel. Now, that is it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to start on Magical Month for August. So we'll be looking at things like John Dee. We'll be looking at things like James I's demonology and what effect that had on just society in general. If you've got any requests for anything specific, please do drop me an email at icy at icysedgwick.com. Feel free to comment on this post. I'll put the link in the show notes or tweet me on Twitter at icysedgwick. So I hope you have an absolutely amazing week ahead and I will speak to you next week. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. 
if you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!